If you would, open up your tablet, your phone, your Bible, flip over or punch in the reference of John chapter 1, verses 19 through 18. And we're going to look at this, we're going to call this part one this morning, because there are a couple of themes, there are a few handful of themes in this section that, that it just is so difficult to choose which ones to leave on the floor and which ones to talk about. So I narrowed it down to two, and we'll, we'll kind of look at it over the next two weeks. So there's one particular theme this morning, we'll talk about that in just a moment. If you would, in honor of the scripture and all those who died so that this book could be placed in our hands, would you please stand with me as we read our text this morning? John chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, nor of the will of man, but nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, the, this, this is the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses and grace, came, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only God who is himself God and is at the Father's side he has revealed them, him. May God bless our study of the scriptures this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open up the eyes of our heart and give to us, share with us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. And as we meditate upon the scripture this morning, we pray that the Holy Spirit would cause it to come alive so that in looking at the written word, we would come face to face with the living word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this morning what I want us to do is I want us to look at a theme that's throughout scripture. And, and I am not saying at the next, in 35 minutes, it is my desire that everyone believe exactly like me. What I wanna do is for you to just be open to a survey of the scripture and just entertain with me an idea for a moment. Upon entertaining that idea and investigating it and maybe talking about it with someone you trust, you might find that you don't necessarily see or agree with this particular idea, and that is fine with me. I am simply trying to be as faithful as I can to the truth that I see and bear witness to it rather than try to indoctrinate other people with the arrogant assumption that you should all believe the way I believe. That is not my desire. But I do have a burden on my heart and I would have to steal from the words of Dallas Willard who wrote a book over 20 years ago called The Divine Conspiracy. And in that book, he coined a phrase that came alive in my soul, has grabbed a hold of me and hasn't really let go ever since. And the, the phrase that he coined was the gospels of sin management. And the point that he was making is this. We have truncated the gospel and shrank it to just one aspect of the gospel that the scriptures talk about and by and large ignored the significance of the larger message. And we've made the gospel a set of affirmations about Jesus when we forget that Jesus himself is the first one who preached the gospel. So whatever our understanding of the gospel is, we have to understand that if it begins with the death of Christ, we've missed a significant portion of the gospel message. 
And unfortunately, most of us are taught to begin there, or if not, begin with the bad news that someone's a sinner and therefore separated from God. And, 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 and that that's why Jesus died to pay that penalty so that they then could be forgiven. It's some kind of version of that. But if that's our primary version of the gospel, we have to understand that actually is not anything that Jesus said. Now, I am not saying that it's untrue. Okay, that aspect of the gospel was very meaningful to me, especially when I was in the dark days of my shame and my guilt. And the only way that I could feel comfortable approaching God was that I was told because of the death of Jesus, I'm covered by his blood, therefore I need no fear of his presence because I've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And I appreciate that. I am not denying that. But I am saying it's an aspect. And what we have to remember is that the gospels themselves teach us that Jesus came teaching the gospel. And that is not his primary message. Jesus came to bring the revelation of the Father's heart. He is God in the flesh so that he's tangible, touchable, experiential. So he could clarify our misunderstandings about him. And if you read through the Gospels, which we will highlight in our journey through John, what we will see oftentimes, well, I would say every time, Jesus was never clarifying disbelief in God. His message was a consistent clarification of misunderstood belief about God. And he highlights in his speech, and we can see it, he over and over acknowledges that some of that misunderstanding came from a misunderstanding of their religion and even their scripture. He is even so bold to make statements like, you've heard it said that he'll quote from the sacred text and then he has the audacity to say, but I tell you as though he's confessing I, the higher authority over the words in that book, I tell you this. So Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Father and to bring forth this announcement of good news, which did not begin with you're a sinner cut off from God, but rather God has drawn near to you and his kingdom is here and it is within you and you, if you choose, can live from your citizenry of heaven right now. You, you don't have to wait to begin after you die, but you can live your life as a citizen of heaven in whatever country we all find ourselves living. It is not bound by politics and geography. The kingdom is thriving all over the world. And Jesus invites us to participate in the life of the kingdom, which means we can either choose to live in the rhythm of the world. We can do that two ways. We can live from the rhythm of the world by pursuing a life of selfishness, greed, and the pleasures of sin. Or we can live through the rhythm of the world by trying to consequence and mitigate the negative circumstances in our life by living a religiously moral life that keeps us busy, keeps us feeling guilty, keeps us tired and exhausted. But we got to hang on to it because that's the way we've been taught to manage our sin until we're free from the presence of sin. But we don't have to live in either of those rhythms. We can live in the rhythm of the kingdom of God, responding to his very present spirit that has been given to us as a gift. And if we are pulling air and life into our lungs, that alone is evidence of the manifest presence of God. And we need no mediation of religious systems or religious experiences in order for that to be real. Now, our systems and our experiences, if they're doing their job, then they're increasing our awareness of this truth. But we all know that sometimes they go in a different direction and they actually create obstacles to the joy of living in that truth. So what I want to suggest is that the gospel is not primarily about sin management. 
It deals with sin as one of the variables or aspects of the gospel, but that's only to set us free from those things that we perceive as an obstacle to us. Not that they're an obstacle to him. I've been taught to teach the gospel in ways that begins with people being enemies of God. But what Paul clarifies is, no, you were his enemy, but only in your mind. I think that's Ephesians. Maybe Colossians. I was going to mix it up. They're very similar. What I am suggesting is from beginning to end, this is always about God's longing to dwell with his creation. That's what it was about from the very beginning all the way down to the last bit of ideas that we encounter in the book of Revelation. It is as if, as if the theme of God's dwelling provides the bookends of the story of creation, reconciliation, and restoration. It is about God's dwelling. It is not, the primary question is not, have your sins been forgiven? The primary question is not, are you a believer? The primary question is, is your life characterized by a radical intimacy with the Almighty as you walk with him as though you were walking with him in the garden in the cool of the day? Even the Garden of Eden itself is about the separation of a space for intimacy. It was the place of unhindered fellowship with God and with one another as the man and the woman were naked but not ashamed. This is what God's after. We want to be a community of the burning heart. It is not about a community that we are primarily preoccupied with the sins we are managing and overcoming. The management, the overcoming of sin is never the goal. It could be a means to the end because your sinfulness might be hindering a life of free enjoyment of intimacy with God because of the consequences and what it's building up in your mind and the damage it's doing to your soul and the damage it's doing to the people who love you. Certainly, it is a significant topic that can't be brushed under the rug. I'm just saying it is not the main point. Because even if I get free of sin just to take up a more positive idol that in which I express my greed and self-centeredness, I am not living in the freedom of the gospel. Gospel freedom is very simple. It is knowing that you are loved that you will always be loved. That the main response of who are you is, I am the beloved of God. That's gospel liberty. And then this awareness, we don't need discipline to live gospel principles because the one who successfully lived the gospel life has given his life to you. So to live the gospel is an expression of trust, not discipline. It's yielding to the life of who you already are, not trying to improve who you think you are, who doesn't measure up. And that's the invitation. But if that's true, then it needs to be true, and I want you to see it in the scripture. So fasten your seatbelts, Christ Community Church. And I just spilled water all over myself. So we'll call it a reception of anointing. So, the theme of God's dwelling provides the bookends of the story of creation and restoration. The theme of God's dwelling is the good news of the gospel. So, we won't look at it. We won't go back. I actually had to do a little cutting and pasting. Actually, no, let's just jump in here. I don't need to give you explanations because you don't know what I left out. Uh, Revelation, here's where the story ends. We go over Revelation 21, and here is the celebration. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Now, I believe there was a time in history when this revelation might not have been accessible. But I also believe that what it's describing is now. 
It is not describing what happens when we fly away from here. That doesn't even really make sense to me. Because all the scripture points to the fact that right now, God's removed every obstacle and his dwelling is with us. This is the goal. This is what we're moving toward, not to get people to stop doing bad things, not to get them to live a different kind of lifestyle. I mean, all of these things may happen, but the ultimate goal is to help one another understand we are never alone and we're never isolated the way we think we are because God has made his dwelling with humanity. And the ultimate expression of that is God's dwelling in the incarnation. So my thought this morning is that to be saved or to have faith is to recognize that you are the dwelling place of God because humanity is the dwelling place of God. Now let's see how this lines out in scripture. And if you are, maybe, maybe you're being, you're, you're, your mind's already going, maybe you're a bit of a thinker and you're going, wait a second, I see, if I think about, reflect upon the, the story, there seems to be places in there where that doesn't seem to be true. Where does that work in? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but human awareness is not. Human discovery and knowledge and wisdom It is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is constantly changing and evolving as we have new experiences and new data that we bring into our thought system and causes that awareness to expand. In the same way, what we have in Scripture is not a beginning single statement about God that just is the end understanding. There is a progression of humanity's awareness about the nature and character of God that you can see transpire through the narrative of scripture until it crescendos with the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then the author of Hebrews will celebrate the fact that this is the final revelation of God because Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. So if you want to see God most clearly, peer into the life of Jesus and listen to his words. So what we begin with this. We begin with the creation story that says that there was a moment in time when there was nothing that we see, but rather there was chaos. There was something like an earth, but it was primarily filled with water. This is what kind of the first chapter of Genesis describes. Now, again, it's not a science textbook. I'm not trying to make a case scientifically of how the earth was once water and then this or that. That's for other people with other different amounts of time on their hands than myself. I I am just celebrating what is there in this great poem. I don't expect my poetry to teach me neurobiology. I expect my poetry to reveal beauty to me in ways that I cannot see it through the study of biology. And so these two poems, are, our book begins with two poems, chapter one and chapter two. And so what we're told is that there was this sense of chaos, but it was not separated from God because he chose to be there. In fact, the word that the poet uses is a fantastic word. It is hover, hover. And so we see in Genesis chapter one, verses one and two, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Formless and void, darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit hovered hovered over the waters. And if God is love, as John reveals to us, then it means it is in love's nature to not be satisfied with just inward awareness, but to move outward and to extend that love to cover others. And at the very, very beginning, before the poet celebrates the, 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 the bringing forth of humanity at all, even in the chaos of that original creation, God was not disconnected. He was there and he was hovering. And he has in his intent 
the creation first of a place for his creation to dwell and delight in and then the creation of his of humanity so that he then shares forth his love with us so then we see he's hovering over the face of the earth now if you were raised in church uh, you're probably familiar with the story. If you weren't, I'm asking you to extend a little moment of trust with me, but you have the Google. Just fact check me after is all I ask, not during. And, uh, but, but I'm fine with being fact checked. But, but as the story moves on, there is this story, and of course we know the tragedy of the story. Genesis chapter 3, which I have said before, I've tried to make the case. I actually don't think it is a moral tragedy. I think that is a relational tragedy that takes place in the garden because the man and the woman are harmed by the deception to not trust the love of God. It's as simple as that. You can either be nourished by the tree of life by walking with God in intimacy or bypass intimacy for knowledge of the system so that you can master it. This is the choice that they're given. And tragically, they choose poorly. But immediately, God begins to chase after them. I mean, in simple terms, the point of this sermon is his heart will never stop chasing you. Ever, 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 ever. It will never stop chasing after you to reveal his love for you. So immediately there's this plan in place to bring them back. And it begins with the man who's the father of a nation. And that nation itself is given at the beginning these magnificent promises of conquest and size and wealth. And yet what they find themselves in is in bondage and slavery to another power in a foreign nation. And yet God's heart is for deliverance to chase after them, to set them free so that he could be their God and they could be his people. So what does he do? As we talked about a few weeks ago, he finds a human being and he speaks to Moses. And Moses says, I'm not qualified for the job. And this is our first revelation. If you're nourished from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you've got to have mastery to know how to reject the bad and embrace the good and work the system. But if you'll trust in God and walk with him, he will be your source. And Moses learns this. He learns that his weakness serves two purposes. It allows him to deepen his dependence on the power of God and to recognize his interdependence in community. Because what Moses can't say, Aaron can say. So once again, we see this revelation of the heart of God. He wants to reveal himself to us, but he doesn't want to do it in isolation. He does it in the context of community. Even in the very beginning, I know I'm kind of ranting here, but even in the very beginning, I find it fascinating that you see this refrain, it's good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. And do you know the first time the opposite phrase is used, not good? In that creation narrative, does anybody recall where it, the one time it's used of something not being good? Anybody remember? It's because the man was alone. And that wasn't good. And so he's revealing himself in community and even with Moses. But Moses, what he does as he is ready to lead the people and he's brought them out of Egypt and they're wandering through the desert. And we're going to pick this story up in Exodus 33. Because in order to lead the people, he had to first be led himself. He had to be led by God. And so he sought radical relational connection with Yahweh. And here was the plan. We see first the hovering of God over the earth. Then we see the dwelling of God in a tent. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp. Far off from the camp... And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. 
When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses, what's it say? Face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now surely we all know the almighty sovereign creator cannot be contained in a tent. So what does it mean that he chose to manifest his presence and meet with people in a tent? It shows us that God condescends to the limits of our understanding. He condescends down to the limits of our awareness because the people could understand a tent where you met with a friend and spoke face to face. So there is an awakening of the awareness of what this God is like. He manifests his presence, this time in a place of intimacy. Again, intimacy is the key. This is why it's emphasized. It's away from the people. It's away from the hustle and bustle. It's away from the noise. It's outside of the camp where to create this place of intimacy where a man could meet with God and speak to him as a man speaks with his friend. So we see the presence of God hovering over formless creation. Then we see the presence of God in a tent called the tent of meeting. And eventually Israel would get a revelation that we can make the tent larger so more of us will fit in it. That tent was then called the tabernacle. And we pick the story of that up over in Exodus 40. So we have God hovering over the earth then the dwelling of God in a tent, then the dwelling of God in a tabernacle. Exodus 40, 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord did what? filled the tabernacle. And they actually experience this as a, man, as a physical manifestation of smoke saturating all of the atmosphere of the tabernacle. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taking up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. Why? Because the point... Regardless, I mean, and I say these wisdom pithy sayings too, and I'm not poo-pooing them. I agree with the sentiments as far as they're concerned, but it actually was not about the journey, nor was it about the sin management. It was about remaining in the dwelling of God, remaining in this place of deep relational intimate connection. So if he was in the tabernacle, they were going to be in the tabernacle. If he leaves the tabernacle and moves on, they're packing up their things, including the tabernacle, which that tabernacle could be moved, and they would follow the cloud to where it hovered again. Verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and the fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So then let's move forward 300 years later. And now they have a land and a kingdom and a king and armies and they fight against enemies and they conquer enemies and they shrink their boundaries and they expand their boundaries. Now they're ready for the permanent dwelling of God. Not a tent, not a tabernacle, but now a temple. And here's what's interesting. The same thing that happened in the tent of meeting that happened again in the tabernacle now happens in the temple. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord, which just like Moses, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good and for his steadfast love endures forever. The presence of God hovered over unformed creation. God was present in the creation then we see the presence of God in this intimate meeting place called a tent. Then we see the presence of God drawing near to the people in this temporary dwelling called the tabernacle. And then once again, we see the presence of God in this permanent dwelling called the temple. However, 285 years after that, one of Israel's most famous prophets will question this. And here's what he prophesies. Isaiah 66, verses one and two. Thus says the Lord. Do you see what's happening? You see the progression. Tent, tabernacle, temple. God acquiescing with his presence as the people's awareness of his nature and his heart is increasing over time. And now we have this little crescendo with Isaiah. And he says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So now we've gone from tent, tabernacle, temple to the stratosphere. Heaven is my home. Earth is just my footstool. What is the house that you will build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So now we have a hint of a deeper revelation. The presence of God hovering over the unformed earth. The presence of God dwelling in a tent. The presence of God dwelling in a tabernacle. The presence of God dwelling in a temple. And then Isaiah says, it's not enough. I want to dwell with the humble and the contrite. There is nothing you can build for me, but there is one to whom I will look. So as we track the history of the story, what we learn is that Nebuchadnezzar destroys that first temple in 586 BC. When he does this, he also takes off with the Ark of the Covenant. And if you have been taking your Bible seriously and watching all the Indiana Jones movies, then you understand the significance of that lost ark. Because what it means is not only is the simple destroyed, temple destroyed, but the presence has departed. The glory of Israel is gone. Never to be rediscovered in that context ever again. Then finally, in the fullness of time, in around 20 BC, they began, King Herod begins to construction on a second temple in Jerusalem that's now occupied by Rome. And it started in 20 BC and the second temple is built with one significant uh, exception. We have no testimony of the cloud and the fire filling that temple. Because the heart, the ark, is not returned. So there is no symbolic gesture showing 
that God has chosen to make his dwelling in that second temple. And in fact, it becomes a very different beast altogether. And in time, in 70 AD, that temple is destroyed by the emperor Titus. His presence hovered over the uncreated chaos of the earth. His presence was seen in a tent. His presence was then seen in a tabernacle. His presence was then seen in a temple. And it was lost until his presence came to earth in the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus. There is a day where the presence of God enters that second temple. And it's when Mary and Joseph carry this infant into the temple. And we have these celebrations from Simeon and Anna because they understand what this means. Hovered over creation in a tent, in a tabernacle, in a temple. In John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You know what? Here's another way it could be said. But if this phraseology doesn't work for you, I'm not claiming that it's the way you have to believe and talk. But one way I've come to read this over the years is that the connection point of heaven and earth was once over a formless void where the spirit hovered. Then the touching place of heaven and earth was in this place called the tent of meeting where they could see the presence of God come down and meet with humanity and speak with them as a man speaks with his friends. And then it expands and the meeting place of heaven and earth is a tabernacle that once again is celebrated with the manifest presence of God. And then we track the story and we see the meeting place of heaven and earth is in a temple that eventually is destroyed. Now, the meeting place where heaven kisses the earth is humanity. That is the significance of the incarnation of the word of God made flesh. Now we're starting to see you're that tent. You are that tabernacle. You are that temple. And you can walk outside and see an infinite host of other image bearers that have become the dwelling of God. My friends, we are not abandoned. And regardless of how dark it seems, we are never away from the presence of God. What's the psalmist say? Even if you go make your bed in Sheol, you travel to the furthest seas, there he is. Which I think it's pretty powerful because I think there were some believers that would assume God's presence is in fact not in Sheol. But even in the place of the dead, he is there. But we're not done. God's plan moves even beyond that. Dwelling in creation, in a tent, in a tabernacle, in a temple, in Jesus, in the crescendo revelation, the presence of God dwelling in us, in humanity. Colossians 1, 24 through 27 now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles which means 
everyone else on the earth other than Israel? Are the riches of, his, of the glory of this mystery? What is a mystery, Paul? I'm glad you ask. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery to which we've been invited to look and peer into. God's dwelling is in us, his people. And if we go back and look at the, some of the more clear teachings of Jesus, uh, let's just take a couple of them that we're going to eventually get to. It's John 14. So we should be there about uh, 2034. Um, John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Get your guilt taken care of. Recognize that in Christ, the principle of sin is destroyed. The epistles celebrate this truth. But sin management is not your goal. It's living from a revelation that God who hovered and who met with people in tents and in tabernacles and in temples and then walked the earth as the incarnated son of God has made his dwelling place in you, my friends. That is the mystery. Again, in John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Look at this. And we will come to him and make our home with him. What does it mean to be saved? It means that you are living from a conscious awareness that you are the home of the Almighty. It is nothing less than that. If you eradicate all your cussing, all your naughty shows on Netflix all your bad attitudes and like you only dress I mean, you, only, you only dance if it's not sensual which I've not mastered yet and yet you've never awakened to the dignity that you are the dwelling of the almighty then I might very humbly suggest that you've missed the point because this is what this is all about. This is the invitation. And then as Christians, as we come to a close, that's a trick phrase. We may or may not be closing, but now you think we are. That's true of you. Look in front of you. Look behind you. Look to your right and to your left because it's also true of all of these individuals you see. When you leave here and you go to Papa's and obey the Apostle Paul to buffet your flesh, it's, healthy. it's, a, it's basically a salad bar that has some pizza on it, so it's okay. But when you're enjoying your food you're in the Holy of Holies. Do you realize, sitting in your restaurant this afternoon, you could easily take off your shoes because you are walking on holy ground. Why? Because containers of the presence will be all around you. This is what we're supposed to see. But if we're nourished from the knowledge of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, then we see categories. Some fit in good, some fit in evil. Those categories allow us to assess and evaluate people, to judge others, to reward some, to punish others. We get to, we get to entertain this whole system and, you've, and we've missed the point of walking together within the garden, within the presence of God, in the cool of the day. And so... 
He reminds us in Matthew 25, 40. We won't go into the whole story. We talk about it here quite a bit because it has formed this particular story. Matthew 25 really speaks to the ethos of this community. Matthew 25, 40. And the king will answer them, I, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers, and the, the, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I love it that we can come in here and sing these wonderful songs. I love this worship team. And when I say that, I don't just mean as a unit and as a concept. I know these people. Some of them, I've laughed some of my deepest belly laughs with. And some with them, I've sat with them and wept. So I love worship. I love this. But we can never forget the quickest way to God's presence isn't in songs we sing or in services we attend, but it's when we touch the broken. That is the most direct access point to the presence of God. What we do to the least of these, his brothers and sisters. So, as we get ready to close, trick phrase number two. Uh, I want us to take this in for just a moment. I, I want you to take a moment to create some space as we get ready for common communion. To really hold space to think about what it means that God wants you to be his dwelling. And he wants you to treat other humans as his dwelling. Now, in order to begin to walk this out, it takes practice. It's not going to happen because of one sermon or a book. It takes practice. We have to return to this over and over again. But as I was praying, I really wanted to think about two things. When we talk about being the presence of God, most of us were raised in systems that told us, here are the ways you get into God's presence. You read your Bible. You pray. Maybe you memorize some scriptures. Maybe you go door to door. Maybe you don't dance. Maybe you don't cuss or chew or run around with men and women who do. Whatever it may be. And so when they hear that, there is a reaction that's rooted in fear, woundedness, exhaustion, and being beat up. I am not saying you have to do X, Y, Z in order to be in the presence of God. I am saying you're already there. Our work is not one of achievement or accomplishment, but just awareness of what's already been achieved and accomplished. That's where our discipline comes in. So it might be that you are in a very active season. And so walking out this revelation is going to look different for you. Is there times and seasons where you leave and go away and get in isolation? Sure there are. But have you ever been in a season where something like that is just a big fat pipe dream? Probably. We're all in different places here. So if you're in a particularly active season, I'm not saying overhaul your life and start looking like a monk. What I am saying is it begins by acknowledging the presence of God in the chaos itself. When I am exhausted taking care of toddlers, when I'm exhausted because the increased demands at work, when I'm exhausted because there's tension and miscommunication in my home, <clears throat> and when if I do get quiet, I know I'm going to fall asleep because I'm exhausted, well then, become aware how you bring God into that chaos with you. One of my favorite ways was the discipline I learned or a practice I learned called breath prayers. It might just be that right now in the season of your life, your devotional looks like a series of breath prayers that you pray throughout the day. Now, because we're Trinitarian here at Christ Community Church, my illustration will be a trinity of breath prayers. But my hope is you eventually begin to cultivate your own. So here you are in the midst and the craziness and you're exhausted, but you remember your dignity is a dwelling place of God, even you don't feel like it. So maybe all you can utter is, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. 
Oh, I pray that a lot when I'm busy. In fact, if you say pray for me and I say I will, that used to mostly be lies because I never really went back and prayed for anybody. But now it is 100% true because if I'm busy, I know I'm gonna forget and I get to have a momentary conversation with Nan and she says, already pray for me. You know what I do? I will go to my truck and I'll say, Lord Jesus, for for Nan May, Lord have mercy. Jesus, for my friend Derek, Lord have mercy. For my friend Rachel, Lord have mercy. Or maybe you'll pray this risky breath prayer. You've got your chaos. You're losing your patience. You don't feel Christian nor really even spiritual. And you breathe in and you say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. I want to know your intuitive wisdom that's already in my heart. I don't even have to seek it, but help me be aware of it. Or maybe you're exhausted and you're heartbroken and the only thing you can muster because your circumstances are insane and because your faith is weak is you just say, Abba, I'm yours. Abba, I'm yours. There's a great story of a saint that blended both extended time in the Lord and breath prayers. One of my favorite saints, St. Francis of Assisi. And this was a testimony of one of his brothers that he was traveling with. And it came time for them to go to bed and the brother went to bed. And he said he felt a little guilty of it, but he peeked over to see what Francis was doing. And Francis was at the side of his bed kneeling with his arms up saying, my God, my all. My God, my all. And the testimony of the brother is the next morning when he woke up, he opened his eyes and rolled over, looked at Francis's bed, and Francis hadn't moved. He's still there at the side of his bed, eyes closed, and as if he's looking at an angel, just saying, my God, my all, my God, my all. That may be it, and that is fine. That's what will bring your awareness into the reality that you are the dwelling place of God. And I inverted the time. I thought it said 12, but it says 21. So um, we will close with this. But if you have time to slow down, you have time to carve out that space, I would encourage you. One of the ways that this conviction has grown in me is in praying the liturgy. Written prayers are mostly reciting scripture. So you might consider taking time to slow down. Pray the liturgy. That's what the elders do on Sunday mornings now. We've got a four-page liturgy that we sit around and we just take turns praying through the liturgy. Sit with Jesus. Be still and listen. Don't just quickly read scripture. Prayerfully read scripture. Take more walks and practice loving kindness. For when you do, this is your real offering to Jesus. If you would, open up your tablet, your phone, your Bible, flip over or pull.